The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of MedPEP or Physician Health Services. The advice given to Marie Curious has been individualized and may not apply to the listener. While Marie Curious is a real person describing both real and hypothetical events and situations, she is using a pseudonym for this series. Welcome to MedPEP, the Medical Professionals Empowerment Program. I'm your host, Dr. Les Schwab, a practicing internist, an experienced medical leader, and a professional coach. I help medical leaders and health professionals manage workplace complexity in today's stressful and depleting environment. My MedPEP role is to guide Dr. Marie Curious, a young primary care internist with a demanding practice. Marie is determined to not only survive, but to thrive at a time when professional burnout runs rampant throughout the system. In each of these MedPEP episodes, I facilitate a conversation between Marie and an expert with knowledge and skills to help her optimize and humanize her practice experience. Today's expert is Dr. Paul Deschamps, who's going to speak to us today about removing barriers and frustrations. But before we jump in, I'd like to ask Marie to say a few words about what has transpired since we last met. And if you recall, we talked to Dr. Joe Shapiro about managing conflict and peer support. Les, always a pleasure to be back with you. So I had time to think about and reflect on how to incorporate conflict resolution and management into my own practice. As you recall, there was specific incidents with one of my colleagues who seems to be demanding more of the resources in our small area of the clinic. And I think what I found through observation is that because of the busyness and idiosyncrasies of every physician's schedule, I just haven't found that optimal time to say, hey, why don't we sit down and chat? Because nobody has time for that. And so I'm still debating whether or not to ask him specifically to carve out time for a meeting versus just moving forward with going up the chain of command, so to speak. What do you think? I think I'm glad to hear that you carried over our conversation last week and saw a chance to apply it, or at least the potential to apply it. And I think that's an excellent segue to this week's conversation, Mm -hmm. because this is one of those barriers and frustrations that you're coping with. And I'm looking forward to your conversation with Dr. Deschamps about how we might remove them. Dr. Deschamps, welcome to the program. Well, thanks. And please call me Paul. Thank you. I was just about to ask you because I can't even fake a very good French accent or a bad one. So thank you, Paul. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and the work that you do to improve the work lives of physicians? Sure. Currently, I actually work as a management consultant, but I've practiced family medicine for 25 years in a variety of settings from small towns to large organizations, including the Palo Alto Medical Foundation, Geisinger, and most recently was the CEO of Sutter Gould Medical Foundation, which is part of the Sutter Health System out in the Central Valley of California, 300 physicians. And it was during the time I was there from 2009 to 14, I led a lean transformation of the management system and culture of the organization built on a theme of returning joy to patient care. We knew we needed to improve the organization for everyone's sake, for the physicians, for the staff, for the patients, But it was so important to have the physicians on board and advocates for this. And if we approached a lean transformation from a standpoint of improving productivity or patient satisfaction, 
our physicians who were frustrated and burned out would have reacted negatively to that. I don't think I would have lasted in my position. But taking the approach that we did, we actually were very successful. At the end of five years, Consumer Reports surveyed 50,000 Californians rating 170 medical groups in the state, and we received the highest overall rating two years in a row. During that time, we also moved our physician satisfaction scores from the 45th up to the 87th percentile. So we didn't do it by forcing our physicians to work harder and flogging them. We did it by engaging them and, and then giving us all the opportunity to do what we love and do it in, in an atmosphere that supported our ability to be effective. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt, Paul, but yeah. I just heard one thing that stuck out, which is that you were quoting the physician satisfaction scores. Do you mean patient satisfaction with the physician or you actually cared about what the physicians felt? Oh, no, this is the AMGA uh, Provider Satisfaction Survey. I don't even think I've ever heard of that. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's, it's widely used. <laughs> Not in my practice, I guess. Well, there's an opportunity right there. <laughs> Please continue. So we managed that transformation with support from the Lean Consulting Firm. They actually offered me the opportunity to join them as an executive coach to support C-suite leaders and other organizations that were pursuing this lean transformation in healthcare. And so three years ago, I started working with Simpler and doing a few things. One is working in C-suites of large healthcare systems that are pursuing that transformation, helping those leaders understand the important role that they have. But also in the process, I got pulled a lot into them asking me to help with getting physicians engaged in lean transformation, because for some reason, the doctors were just too busy uh, to do that. And Inevitably, it became clear that there were a couple of things going on. One is oftentimes the leaders weren't that engaged with the physicians, but they were wanting the physicians to be engaged with them. And secondly, there wasn't a compelling reason for the docs to get engaged until we thought about how lean actually can act as a way to prevent burnout by reducing the drivers of burnout in the workplace. And when we helped people understand that and address the barriers and frustrations that doctors face on a daily basis, then that was a great way for physicians to get engaged. That led me to explore that more deeply and actually ended up co-authoring a book on that subject. Diane Shannon, who actually lives in Boston, is an internist who's now a medical writer. And she and I interviewed about 60 international experts on healthcare, lean, and burnout, and wrote this book, which has been pretty well received. Now I do a lot of work you know, engaging executives, but also engaging physicians on burnout, including uh, speaking quite a bit in a variety of locations. I see. And Paul, can you tell us a little bit about what lean is for our listeners who don't know? Sure. Thanks for asking. Most people think lean is all about removing waste from workflows. And certainly that's an important component of it. But at its heart, it's a couple of other things. It's a management system and culture that's based deeply on respect for people, particularly the people who are doing the work on the front lines and honoring their knowledge about what's not working and their ideas about how to fix those. But it creates an, an entire management system that supports that approach and deeply based in this concept of respect for people. Uh, a lot of well, what's called lean has been done really focused only on productivity 
but not focused on uh, the principles of respect for people and what's important in healthcare. How did you approach it differently with the practices you mentioned in terms of turning around the culture with regards to provider satisfaction? So we've actually built the theme of that transformation on returning joy to care. There's been a number of people around the country that have developed this viewpoint and this, and there's been a lot of effort building on moving towards this goal. But we introduced to Gould in a way that it hadn't been before, and particularly because there was senior leadership engaged. As the CEO, when I was out there communicating this, showing my commitment to it by participating fully in all of the processes, then people believe that, it, that we're serious about it. One of the challenges with lean transformations often is the, the people in the C-suite are very busy. They're distracted with a lot of other things. They think lean's a good idea. They'll tell somebody, the process improvement person, maybe the CMO or department chair, oh, you like this lean idea? Let you go do this lean thing for us. But we're asking people to go through significant change mm. when we ask them to do this. And most people don't like to change. And if they don't see the top leadership of the organization engaged in that change and supporting it, they'll figure it's another one of those management fads that'll fade over time. So a couple of things helped us to be successful, but one of them was the leadership commitment that myself as well as a number of my team had. So in the many work settings that you've witnessed and experienced yourself, what are the biggest things that needed to be redesigned? <laughs> Where do we start? <laughs> Just to finish up the story of my career, Simpler got acquired by IBM Watson Health sort of by accident. So now I actually work for IBM, which I never in my life thought I would be doing. I thought I'd be a family doctor for all of my career. But as I got into working in organizations, I found I, when there was something wrong, I couldn't keep my mouth shut. And so they put me on a committee and then they'd say, well, why don't you be a medical director? And eventually kept moving up these management positions. But it was all those frustrations, you know, when you're just get, trying to go through day to day and all these things go wrong, physicians we're all very highly motivated to take great care of our patients. And that motivation is very strong. You know, one of the concerns I have about a lot of the discussion and, and approach to burnout is that it's all focused, too much of it has been focused historically on improving physician resilience. And we are some of the most resilient people in the world, and we're dedicated to the thing that's most important to us and gives us professional fulfillment, which is care for our patients. We're the people who actually took and passed organic chemistry just so we could do this thing. So the problem really isn't physicians aren't resilient, but we've been put into this work situation, and it sounds like you're experiencing it, where there are so many barriers to that ability to connect directly to your patient that it becomes very difficult. Whether it's the electronic health record where, depending on how your room is set up, you know, you may have to type in passwords, you may have to have your back to the patient, you know, you're too busy trying to put things in correctly. You can't find your way around from screen to screen, whether it's the fact that rooms aren't equipped properly. So you go to try to find something out of a drawer and that tongue blade or this gauze pads aren't there when you need them or equipment's not working or the schedule's overloaded or things aren't predictable enough. So you have too few patients or too many patients, you name it. There's so many things that are just problems that get in the way of our ability to connect with and focus on our patients. A lot of our focus in lean is to remove those defects, those barriers, those frustrations. I've got a question, Paul, which is, I wonder if you could give an example of how you connected joy in practice 
to one of the tangible outcomes? What was the call to action or the attraction for doctors to participate, solve, and sustain the change? So I'll give you a couple. At, at Sutter Gould, one of the internal medicine doctors was 86 years old. He started practicing like a year after I was born. <laughs> but he was complaining to me one day about the EHR. You know, and with like all physicians, I mean, I love and I hate the EHR, and we all know why. But he was complaining about it. And then he said, but you know what? This lean thing you're doing seems to be working because my medical assistant has been out on medical leave herself for almost a year. But because you standardize the way that patients get roomed, it doesn't matter which medical assistant is supporting me. I can go into every room and know reliably that my patient's ready for me when I walk in there. That whole question of walking into a room, you know, if you don't have that standard work for rooming a patient, you don't know what you're going to get when you walk in the room. Has they have somebody just gotten vital signs and a chief complaint and didn't bother to check anything else out? Or have they actually done some pre-work to give you the information you need to quickly do medication reconciliation? Reviewed past social and family history and made sure there's any updates. Looked for any care gaps that need to be addressed and pended the orders to take care of those. If you can walk in a room and all of that's been done for you, it saves you so much time from minutiae. I think Chris Sinsky is a VP for the AMA and is a real leader in this joy and practice movement. And she talks about it as though there's no other there's no other profession where we take the highest trained, most valuable person and have them do the most low-level front-end data entry and customer service work. And you know, we have great value and our patients want to be connecting to us, but uh, when we're disconnected because we're busy taking care of little minutia someone else can take care of. That creates a significant part of the problem. So that, that's one example. The other example might be we worked a lot to develop a team care approach where uh, we thought very carefully about how to make this model work from a financial as well as operational standpoint. But we added additional MAs to physicians who were interested in pursuing this where the medical assistant would room the patient, thoroughly prepare the patient, and then stay in the room when the physician came in and act as a scribe while the doctor was in the room. And that allowed us, when the physician walked in the room, to sit down and look our patient in the eye rather than focus on the screen and to use our hands to examine and comfort the patient rather than put our hands on the keyboard. And patients would respond to that tremendously well. So there was always this fear that the patients wouldn't, would want the privacy of not having somebody else in the room, but most of them reacted to say, I can't believe it. My doctor sat down and looked me in the eye and paid attention to me instead of the computer. Um, and that was tremendously fulfilling for the physicians as well as for the patients. Paul, this may sound a little bit cynical, but uh, <laughs> what you describe sounds incredible, truly. I mean, it sounds uh, like heaven for physicians to have a right. scribe, to have the patient completely prepped. I mean, I've never heard of a practice like that until now, which is good to know that it can exist. But the bottom line that the leadership has, at least in my organization, is that, you know, the dollar signs what speak. And so is the model that you're describing financially sustainable? Is it profitable? Because that is what I guarantee you the C-suite of my organization will ask you. So, Marie, that's a perfect question. And indeed it is. One of the challenges I see, having been in the C-suite, and, you know, people in the C-suite, are they're struggling. They're diverted by mergers and acquisitions, and they're just trying to keep the place. We run on very thin financial margins. We're trying to keep the doors open and the lights on with a 1% to 3% margin. It's tough. But the reality is if we think differently about the financial model, indeed these do work. 
because when we do this, when you think that a doctor spends two hours on the computer for every hour they're with a patient, when we put a model like this into place, we can cut that time on the computer at least in half. And when we can do that, we actually create capacity to see more patients while we still can leave the office on time without hours of work to do in the evening. But you have to think bigger than most people are able to think. You put these business models together and think about them carefully, but they actually do work. And so it's, it is worth pursuing them. Too often, there's a number of issues. There's too many people in leadership positions in healthcare organizations that uh, really don't understand their operations at a granular enough level to help approach managing them more effectively. And too many people that think, if I'm in a financial crunch, I've got to cut expenses. And in hospitals, that's pretty much your fastest and most effective way to improve a financial picture. But in a practice, if we can increase the number of patients we're seeing, we can maintain or even increase expenses, but far exceed that with the increased revenue. Now, when everybody's already working more than they can, and in fact, most doctors are, they do not have the capacity to see more patients right now, unless we redesign the care models like this. Most people go home and spend hours at night. And personally, I fell asleep too many nights on the keyboard trying to get my notes done and my in-basket cleaned out when I was practicing without a model like this. So I know the pain. So we can't just go and say, we'll see more patients. That doesn't work. It's got to be very carefully thought out and worked through. But there are models around the country, places you can go and see that are willing to share this with you and, and be examples and teach you how to do it. My goodness, Paul, if you haven't already, I'd love for you to make a tour stop here in Boston because I think we have a lot to learn. A, a lot of the things that you just mentioned is exactly what my organization is going through right now in these financially harder times. They've made the cuts. We've been asked to see more patients, but I haven't really found that real implementation for a systemic change has been proposed to really help us achieve these. You just feel like you're getting pushed from either end and being squeezed a, a little bit harder every day. Right, well, and that, that's the challenge right now, is that's the way everyone feels because there are so many external factors that are causing this, this, these issues. When I give talks, I talk about the fact that what really drives burnout is we take a highly motivated professional, put them into a work environment where it is nearly impossible to be truly successful without being constantly vigilant and focused. And you can be hypervigilant for a short period of time. And actually it's pretty exciting sometimes when you do, you know, we've all been through a code or worked a tough shift in an ER or something like that, where we got through a tough day and it was exhilarating, but you can't do it constantly without burning out. Yeah. And we're in a situation now where we're doing it constantly. And, and the reason the workplace is toxic isn't because executives get up in the morning and think, about creative ways that they can make their doctor's lives miserable. It's, 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 because, it's because they're trying to deal with all these issues around EHR functionality, meaningful use, adding in ICD-10, multiplying by the factor of 10, the number of codes, all the changes and uncertainty around the ACA, MACRA, what's gonna happen next with the regulatory environment. The patients are getting sicker, they're getting older, they're getting more linguistically and culturally diverse, which makes them harder to take care of, they're demanding more. Oftentimes, we used to be we wanted to give all patients every pain made we could because pain was the fifth vital sign. Now, 
Now, now we're told we shouldn't give pain meds and we have to consult the opioid database before we do so. And if we deny the patient meds, we're starting to see violence happen in the workplace. Mm. Even if you abandon your patient satisfaction scores, Yelp is still out there giving us star ratings. So <laughs> there's all of these factors that are impinging on us. Um, and it makes it all the more important actually for the executives, the leaders, and the physicians to come together and find a way to, to truly collaborate, build a stronger level of trust together to find creative ways to address these issues. So two things, Paul. One is going back to the phrase, the joy of practice or the joy of you know, primary care, the joy of medicine. That phrase has actually become somewhat of a butt of a joke in our clinic because it's used so often to, hmm, how do I say this? It's kind of a commodified word. It's sort of been drained of its It's real real meaning. meaning. Because every time it's used in context of changes that are being implemented in our system, it actually seems to suck more joy out of the process. And so it's nice to hear from your perspective that it's actually possible to reintroduce joy to practice. And part of what I'd love to see is how a frontline doctor like myself, and I practice, that, that's all I do. How can I, at the very, very bottom of the totem pole, how can I have an impact on our leadership that will lead to real change, like the change that you're describing? Yeah. Do you get a chance to meet with your leadership? We do. And that just started in the last year or two. We do have perhaps quarterly meetings with C-suite individuals. So first of all, don't ever pass up the opportunity to meet with them because when you're in those meetings is when you have a chance to actually start to build a relationship. Mm. And don't do what I used to do, which was come in very angry and (laughs) feel like I had to make sure they listened. I had to make my point very vehemently. If they're meeting with you, they actually are interested, hopefully, in hearing what you have to say. Secondly, when you're there, invite them to come and shadow you for a few hours or a half a day and just see what the reality is. Because I will bet you most of them don't really experience that and don't understand what it's like. And when they get the chance to see it firsthand, it can be life-changing or certainly a management approach changing for them. And one of the great stories I love is Dr. John Toussaint at ThetaCare was told he needed to go out and shadow and he finally went out and went to the ICU saw how much, how, what contortions the nurses had to go through just to get the lines plugged in properly. He was in the middle of a big capital investment to redesign a bunch of buildings, and they actually stopped that process, decided they were going to invest in the ICU redesign as well, which they didn't originally have on their plans, because he had gone and seen what it was like. When they see the reality of what you're dealing with, oftentimes that can make a big difference. Paul, I think that's very helpful. And um, when you mentioned near the beginning that as a younger professional, you often went in and you spoke very loudly and ultimately they put you on the leadership committee. I'm feeling like a slightly opposite effect when I go into these meetings and I'm actually not angry because I've learned through MedPep, this very podcast series that in order to be effective, I have to have my facts, I have to present a solution, I have to be clear in what I'm articulating without bringing the emotion. So I want to say that I've done that a few times with members of the C-suite. And after the fact, I've actually gotten called in, so to speak, to the principal's office, to my direct supervisors, to please run questions and comments by them 
before we go into these larger group meetings. In fact, I'm being asked of the opposite. I think maybe I'm too outspoken. I don't want to be, quote unquote, that physician that causes trouble, but I don't really find myself to be a rabble rouser. I think I'm actually fairly reasonable, but I'm beginning to feel like the feedback that I'm getting from my own clinic is that they would rather I perhaps fall into line a little bit more. Mm. Well, that speaks speaks volumes to the corporate culture there. And I think that's something you want to think very deeply and carefully about is, is this an organization that you want to be part of if that's the case. Now, as I say that, I'm a little uh, cautious because if, if people who are in the hierarchy between you and the meeting in which you made those statements, there is, uh, there can be problems when we jump levels of an organization in presenting issues. And particularly if you haven't first talked to the people that might be in the middle. And I'm not saying, you know, I, I, I haven't been there to see, and you probably got invited to the meeting. And so you spoke when you were asked. And yes. it is the responsibility of the people who are your direct supervisors to be reaching out to you to hear your concerns. And most likely they could learn from this as well to be more proactively connecting with you to hear what your concerns are. So they don't come as a surprise when they're presented at a higher level in the organization. I'd like to jump in with an observation, which is I wanna, first of all, say, Marie, I think you've absorbed your lesson about advocacy very well from the earlier installments of our program here. And on the surface of it, nothing wrong with what you've done. One thing you could do now though, is also as these middle level leaders are also stakeholders, is inquire what their interests in these controversial issues are and see if you can find common cause with them. Mm. And also inquire why there was this pushback so that you understand what their concern was for your own information. Because I think, as we've heard from Paul, I think there's probably common cause among all levels of the organization at a deep level in promoting physician well-being and patient care and patient safety. Mm -hmm. And that reorienting the conversation to a reasonable difference of opinion about how it's done as opposed to um, a tug over who gets to say what. Maybe that's conceivable. Paul, a last question for you from me is, are there any openings for primary care physicians at your <laughs> previously turned around <laughs> organizations? There are openings in pretty much every healthcare organization in the country for primary care <laughs> physicians. So uh, there certainly are some that are doing this better than others. I'd be happy to talk with you about that <laughs> offline. <laughs> a couple other quick thoughts. There's a really great resource a book called Everybody Matters. It's written by a fellow named Bob Chapman. It's actually comes from the manufacturing world, but he had this great insight about how to treat everyone in his organization well. And he has over 8,000 employees and 80, 80 manufacturing plants around the world. But by treating everyone as though there's somebody who matters as though our own family members matter to us, that we could create very positive working environments that have a tremendous impact on great business results as well. So that book, Everybody Matters by Bob Chapman, is one I recommend uh, very frequently and would be a great resource to, if you look at that, it might also give you some more thoughts about how to connect with the people that you're struggling to connect with right now. 
Well, I want to agree that I think this notion of everybody matters is very important. And I think it is really critical that if we as physicians are expected to show up in one way for our patients, then I think the way that our organizations expect us to show up should be the same. As engaged, interested, problem-solving partners in the enterprise as we position ourselves with our patients, that it would be healthy to do that as well. So I want to thank you, Paul, for a very enlightening talk. I have some passing familiarity with Lean myself and agree that it is a great way to solve problems of the design of care at the front line and restore time back to doctors and patients to be together and hope that shy of a full Lean implementation, other organizations may take up the cry of learning to use the front line's insights into making the practice of medicine truly more joyful. So thank you very much. Thank you so sure. much, Paul. I've, I've really learned that there are compassionate C-suite people like you out there, and it is possible <laughs> to keep the lines of communication open, and I'm gonna keep working on that. Great. Thanks so much, Paul. It was really nice to talk with you. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Very, very good. With that, I wanna thank our listening audience for tuning in to yet again another very interesting session of MedPep, and I'm looking forward to next week's session when indeed our guest is going to be Dr. Diane Shannon, whom Paul mentioned, and she is going to be speaking about one burnout survivor's story and her quest to change the system. Thank you. Thank you. Great. If you have a question or a comment about today's program, Email us at feedback at medpep.org or simply visit us at medpep.org. And now, here's a few words from MedPep's founder, Steve Edelman. This is Dr. Steve Edelman, creator of MedPep, the Medical Professionals Empowerment Program, and director of PHS, Physician Health Services, a charitable subsidiary of the Massachusetts Medical Society. Our mission is to promote the well-being of health professionals. Many thanks to our seeker, Dr. Marie Curious, to our guide, Dr. Les Schwab, and to our wonderful group of guest experts. Hats off to project leader, Dr. J. Dev Dasgupta, audio producer, Douglas Stevens, guitardiologist, Dr. Susie Brown, and to the staff and board of PHS. Please visit and connect with us at medpep.org for CME info, faculty bios, and additional empowerment resources.